because I just don't see these poor cancer patients in practice actually getting told that, yes, what you put in your mouth also matters. We need to do this surgery right now because you're pretty banged up, but yeah. you need to also prevent this from happening in the future by changing your lifestyle. Yeah, the funny part is there is plenty of research supporting that diet and lifestyle can prevent cancer, right? Yeah, and even beneficial for healing cancer, but it's not under the bedside. It, it's not used, and that's, that's what pisses me off. <laughs> that's kind of why I do what I do. Hello and welcome to the Health Detective Podcast by Functional Diagnostic Nutrition. We bring you interviews from people who have conquered the trickiest of health challenges using the Functional Diagnostic Nutrition philosophy and similar healing modalities. You're going to hear from experts who have been through the ringer with their health issues and yet managed to come out on the other side. If you're interested in natural healing and or functional medicine, congrats, you are in the right place. You can always visit us at functionaldiagnosticnutrition.com. But for now, here is today's episode. What is going on, my friends? And welcome back to another episode of the Health Detective Podcast by Functional Diagnostic Nutrition. My name is Evan Transu, aka Detective Ev, and I will be your host for today's show. And we're speaking with my friend Nata Wanasorn. She is a PhD scientist and a functional diagnostic nutrition practitioner who helps bring natural health to the general public using online content, copies, and courses. Nata believes the best way to advocate for natural health is to demonstrate scientific literacy and communicate with integrity. As former chief content officer of the popular health website Self-Hacked and genetic analyzer Self-Decode, she co-created science-based health detective content for over 3 million readers and helped 1,000 impossible cases. She now runs Wellness Medical Writer, a marketing agency that helps busy health practices and health e-commerce companies communicate the science behind their missions. If it's not already obvious, this is one sharp cookie. Her and I met at the Biohacking Congress. It's a type of conference in June of 2022 up in Boston. And she was someone who we were just talking with before. Like, I didn't really know she was an FDN. And then I found out she had graduated from FDN all the way back in 2012. And she's always integrated that in some way in her current work. So she's got a lot of different certifications, degrees, and FDN is one of them. She now currently resides in Mexico. And I think that's what's so cool about our line of work. I mean, even though she's not taking clients directly per se, she still has the ability to work remotely from anywhere in the world. And so she's hanging out in Mexico City while going and helping people online. I think it's pretty amazing. And when we talk to her today, we're going to hear about her story of just very type A personality, super driven, the family kind of push that came and influenced her to push this hard. And eventually, uh, you know, it kind of made her pretty sick. And I love people like this who are this smart, this well-read, and this research-backed who then get into work like this because these are some of the most credible people that you could ever hear from. This is a former cancer researcher who then turned health coach and natural health practitioner. I think there's something to be said about that. I also think there's a lot to be learned in this episode, so I'd like to jump right to it. Without further ado, let's get to the show. All right. Hello there, Nata. Thanks so much for being here with us today. Yeah, it's nice talking to you again. All right. So we had met at the Biohacking Congress, which is a type of conference in Boston in June of 2022. And I find I find out that she has been an FDN since 2012. So one of the OG FDNs, we've had a few of those on the show. It's kind of amazing how many people there are from that 
era that are like wandering around doing great work and doing good things in the world that I don't hear of as much. I think FDN Mm -hmm. is a lot more like community oriented now, right? Where if someone goes through and graduates today, it's pretty hard not to get involved um, with a bunch of people. But I think it was a little more uh, spread out in the beginning. So I meet these cool Mm -hmm. people still to this day that have been doing this double the time of myself and are, have very successful businesses and lives with what they're doing. And I've never even heard of them. So I'm glad to kind of figure out what your story is today. I only have certain pieces of it. And the audience knows that's my favorite way to do these interviews. I don't like to know everything. I like to know just enough. And so I want to start off today, Nata, with the same question that we do with everyone on this show. And that is just when did your health symptoms start? And what the heck did they look like? <laughs> I've only grew up in a lot of it. I realized like that I grew up in eczema in the household you know and there are like steroid creams like hidden in every corner and then you know mm-hmm. we'd go out with, for Japanese food or something and there would be antihistamines like being passed around so <laughs> that was <laughs> with the salt and pepper right yeah here's your Benadryl <laughs> you know the soy sauce but that's that's normal like <laughs> and then like when I, I went to grad school right so I would have like painkillers antihistamines and all these little over-the-counter medications in the drawers like everywhere um so that was how it started as far as I knew <laughs> and then in the middle yeah Yeah, go ahead. Well, I I guess the one thing I was going to say, because it's always important to me to know this, when you guys were passing out the antihistamines and stuff like that, I mean, you're a pretty sharp person. Was there any thought in your head at that time, at least, that this wasn't normal? Or was it just so common that you just didn't think anything about it? Like, hey, this is just what we do. Um, I'm a surgeon's daughter (laughs) and granddaughter. So, yeah, it's it's. to me, that was normal. And it was <laughs> what a lot of my family members did, even antibiotics. And yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I thought, and it felt like it was harmless, even though everyone knew it's not harmless, right? Yeah. Yeah. So how does that continue to progress? Because it starts out with this stuff. And then you said that you were dealing with that stuff in college. Like, where does this get to the point where now it's really becoming a, a bad part of your life or something that you can't ignore? Yeah, so I mean, like, I went to college and I was studying really hard. At some point, I was studying it until four in the morning. <laughs> yeah, like almost every night. So, and I blew up 30 pounds, which is probably normal if you don't sleep properly, right? And I graduated, went to grad school, and I looked like this perfect scientist with my life and everything together. Until, um, like, a three to four years in, um, I, my experiments were not working for a couple of years by then, and I started to um, hit my quarter life crisis. In, I was probably depressed, not that I realized it, but how I was operating was I was like working really hard, like four to 14 hours in the lab every day just to like avoid what I was feeling or mm-hmm. the depressing things that were happening in my life until one day, like it was like playing like a ball with my feeling, right? So, oh, this is coming up. Let's like forget about that and start working really hard and plan another experiment. Um, one day I woke up covered in eczema and it was impossible mm-hmm. to ignore. Yeah. That was like, okay. oops. <laughs> yeah. It's kind of interesting sometimes how, uh, because I, I listen, I'm just as guilty of this. It was literally acne that was one of my breaking points. I find it interesting how we could deal with like all these symptoms sometimes, but vanity, mm-hmm. our very natural vanity is what gets us sometimes. Like when it's something yeah. that actually looks bad, then we're like, okay, now I'll go do something. So uh, between a, a diagnosis I had gotten at 18 mixed with severe cystic acne, all right, well, now it's time to do something uh, about the health. And so if you're 
again, obviously with the history of your family, you have super smart people involved here, but it's super smart people that do think in a very conventional way. And so were you immediately going to like diet and stuff or were you just like, Hey, I need to go do something in the Western medicine world about this. No. Um, so before that, I was doing personal training and bodybuilding and it was partly the bodybuilding and taking a ton of fat burners that is slammed on my adrenals. <laughs> mm-hmm. And at some point I was probably like drinking, you know, six cups of coffee a day to start to stay awake. That was probably part of the depressive symptoms I was dealing with. I had no energy, but I was trying to hide it. Right. Um, so, well, yes, like before that, I had patches of eczema here and there and I'm like, yeah, I'm just going to get the star cream. So it's going to go away. But then when it was like covered, covering about half of my upper body, like everywhere. And it was like excruciating. And I did grow up watching my family members use really strong sour creams. So like the ones who are in the US had to import the buckets of sour creams. They're literally like a 500 mil bucket. <laughs> That's like, you can't get that strength in the US because they were not responding to <laughs> sour creams that they could get in the US. So yeah, so I'm like, I don't want that. Right. And, and like 30 years into it, just to using the star cream, like I, I knew a lot of things were wrong. I was like, this is my fault. I want to fix it naturally. And I happened to um, meet a friend who was going to school for naturopathic medicine. So I'm like, you know what? I'm going to give this thing a try and be a scientist. This is the experimental. <laughs> so, so I did that. Um, they suggested an elimination diet, but with their stuff I was going through at the time, I had a lot of emotional eating going on. So it was really hard mm-hmm. for me to stick to the diet, which um, kind of gave me a lot of compassion now when I'm trying to help people with their food. Yeah. So once I finally got through with the diet, then I cleared it in about a month. Yeah. So I'm actually wow. glad I did that. One of the things that kept me to the diet and to avoiding steroid creams was I found a group of people, um, I think it's called topical steroid cream addiction. And there was like a a Google group or a Yahoo group at the time and the pictures in that group were gruesome. <laughs> yeah, so I'm like, I'm glad I found this group so I knew before I get on steroids this time. Wait, what is the addiction component? Does the steroid there, do something? No, so topical steroids are meant to be used like on a short-term basis, right? Mm-hmm. So you use it, it goes away, and then hopefully when you stop using it, it goes completely away. But there are people who started using it as babies, and then they use it for decades, and or people, other people who use it for years, and then they start developing another kind of rash that don't respond to steroids, or when they put the steroids on the original rash, the other rash becomes stronger. And I guess that's because they never address the gut, the inflammation, and the mind-body part that led to the eczema in the first place. All right, so you're playing whack-a-mole with your body. It's like, here's a dysfunction, you need to address it. So um, the other thing that sour creams do is that it makes the immune cells that contribute to the eczema more potent. Hmm. So this is my guess. I, I, I'm not sure if there are actual studies behind it, but I was looking at how sour creams affect their regulatory T cells and interleukin 17 and all that cytokine stuff. So I think that's what happens for these people. And the real solution is to get off the star creams and then they get bad flares and some people go through that for years before they become normal again. So yeah, that's in a nutshell, wow. something that I avoided. Okay. I always find it crazy how some of the skin stuff, and, and this is not universal. I don't want to be ignorant to anyone listening, but sometimes it really can be 
quite a simple switch in their diet or lifestyle that leads to pretty mm-hmm. profound results. Um, I find for myself, it's kind of interesting because even still to this day, like the stress of, I just got back from a conference. I'm not a particular fan of flying. The whole thing's stressful, mm-hmm. right? You're staying up late. You're living inside all day. It's not what I normally do. And like, even that'll get like a little breakout for me. But mm-hmm. the I was able to knock out 70% of the initial acne that I had in one month by just switching to a more organic whole foods diet at the time. I mean, I didn't even really change the stuff I was eating. I lowered sugar a little bit, but from what I recall, I mean, I still ate dairy. I still ate gluten. All I did was switch to organic and Mm -hmm. you can get like these profound shifts really easily. Almost. It's like the last lingering bit. That's always kind of the the tougher parts for people, but uh, guys don't underestimate if you've never done that yet. And I would assume most people listening to this show probably have, but just in case you don't underestimate what one month of abstinence from a food that you love could actually really do for your health. It sometimes can change everything around. And so that's really cool that you got lucky enough to meet this friend who was happening to go to school for naturopathic medicine. Um, Mm -hmm. And thankfully you had an open enough mind to even apply that, right? Because there's plenty of people who know these individuals and, and they don't do anything with it. How did you eventually get to FDN? Because it's one thing to to try an elimination diet based on what a friend says. It's another thing to say, Hey, I'm going to go pursue this course and try to learn more about it directly. Like what, how did you find FDN? So, um, I was listening to a bunch of paleo podcasts by that point. And of course it came across, mm-hmm. um, Sean Croxton. Right. And I went to school yeah, for yeah. holistic nutrition. Yeah. And there was a scope of practice where, you know, we were only allowed to talk about food. We did learn about labs, but I was curious about the functional labs. And I, I mean, my, my experience was I normalized my hormones after going so low, my body fat and into normal. So that's what I was interested in doing. Yeah. So that's how cool. I came across and become an FDN. Very cool. It's um, it's interesting how when I when I do meet those people from like back in the old days of FDN, almost mm-hmm. exclusively they all came from Sean Croxton's podcast. <laughs> like everyone was just listening to him back in the day. I guess he was huge. It's yeah. interesting because I think his podcast retired in 2015, and that's mm-hmm. mind blowing to think that this was such a big podcast for this space, this niche space of functional medicine. And he retired from that in 2015, like, and then did something else because, you know, I feel like we're just getting started and there's so many people that still need to listen to these shows. And yet, I mean, that guy was just way ahead of his time. So he's got a great show now. I encourage people to go check it out. It's all about personal development and stuff. Um, But anyway, you at one point, you were researching cancer, right? That's the kind of work you were doing, correct? Yeah. Like my entire life, I wanted to be a cancer researcher. Cool. So was this a huge mindset shift and paradigm shift when you started adding the more natural stuff in because I'm guessing that that research you were doing for cancer was not necessarily 100% in alignment with some of the stuff that you were learning now from a functional perspective. Well, no, <laughs> because like every presentation you start in biology, I mean, if you snoop into my grad school, uh, you start with modern nature is correct. So you assume that everything you're observing is correct, right? And then you try to understand why. And that was, I think there was the same thought process where like, I got this eczema flare, <laughs> my body is correct, let's try to understand why. But mm-hmm. for some reason, like when it comes to drug development, it's the opposite thinking where you're like, your body is wrong, let's smack in the face and try to cover up the symptoms. So I, I think the the way we do natural medicine or like functional medicine is very much in agreement with the original scientific ways, even though some of the treatments are not entirely scientific. Yeah. 
Okay. Very cool. That's good. That's good to know. That's encouraging. Um, my aunt, when she was diagnosed with cancer, it was just, I, I, listen, I understand that when someone catches something late, they need to do what they have to do. I'm not ignorant to that. Mm-hmm. It was just, it was crazy how fast it was. Not that they took her in and, mm-hmm. you know, she had these headaches. She gets diagnosed mm-hmm. with a brain tumor within days. They have her undergoing surgery. And then within the month or two months, whatever it was, they have her undergoing chemotherapy. Now, I'm not for or against it. This is a complicated situation, and I'm not pretending that I'm a medical doctor who understands the complexities of something like that. But how we could be doing these things to a human being, going through brain surgery and chemotherapy, and they never once brought up to her, because I asked her, never once brought this up, the idea that maybe what she was eating or doing in her life led to the cancer that just seems like an incomplete form of treatment for me. I'm not even advocating necessarily for one way or the other. I'm just saying I wish it was both. So that's why I asked if the research was different because I just don't see these poor cancer patients in practice actually getting told that, yes, what you put in your mouth also matters. We need to do the surgery right now because you're pretty banged up, but yeah. you need to also prevent this from happening in the future by changing your lifestyle. Hey folks, it is Detective Ev popping in here really quick. Maybe you're listening to this episode and you are like us thinking, wait a second, this is kind of crazy. There are people out there who have these extremely serious diseases, many of the times being caused by lifestyle, and yet they are treated with drugs and surgery that have lots of side effects and could even potentially kill them. Now, I'm not a doctor, so I'm not saying don't do any of those things. That's up to you and your doctor what you think is right or what might be even necessary, depending on where you're at in your health journey. But regardless of where you're at, I think we can all use some common sense and say there's nothing that's going to be hurt by someone taking a more functional approach, analyzing labs, actually figuring out what's going on in their body, and then optimizing their lifestyle and diet choices for them so that they have the best odds at healing. You would think that's something we can all agree on, and yet we don't see it practiced nearly enough in today's modern world. Well, if you would like to be a part of that, then go to fdntraining.com slash try FDN, and you can now try the FDN course completely for free. There is no credit card required. It is literally free. You get to see if this is for you or not for you. And if it is for you, great. We can take the next steps. And if it's not, no harm, no foul. We very much hope that you find something that resonates with you because if you're listening to a podcast like this, you're probably in search of something like this. So that's fdntraining.com slash try FDN to try the course completely for free. Okay, now let's get back to the episode. Yeah, the funny part is there is plenty of research supporting that diet and lifestyle can prevent cancer, right? Yeah, and even beneficial for healing cancer, but it's not under the bedside. It, it's not you, and that's that's what pisses me off. <laughs> yeah. That's kind of why, why I do what I do. And listen, I'm not trying to, um, because I don't know what your theory or answer is to this. I'm not trying to get you into some like big, oh my gosh, it's the pharmaceuticals trying to control this conspiracy theory. That's not what I'm saying. But like, what is your idea or theory as to like, if there is research here and people are learning this, like, why is this not also taught to people like my aunt who got great treatment seemingly, uh, but was never told something like that? Like, why is that not happening? Um, Lots of different reasons, right? Money could be one of them. So it could be that Mm -hmm. they're pharmaceuticals are more profitable, so they go in that direction. Um, maybe the, the sicker people are, or the more sick people they are, the more profitable the health system is. So that's another possible reason. Another thing could be that conventional medicine is extremely fixated on having large-scale placebo-controlled randomized trials, right? Mm-hmm. And it, it doesn't take into account enough of the individual differences between people. Like, you know, what's everyone's story? 
what's your tumor like? I mean, cancer treatments is getting more personalized. They're learning to test the genes, the genetic mutations in each of the tumor and targeting your drugs specifically. But um, I don't think they are paying attention to the rest of it. Like someone's stories, how they developed the cancer, what their lifestyle was like, right? Yeah. Does that answer your question? Yeah, yeah, no, it does because I well, I guess actually the one thing I'd follow up with um, mm-hmm. is because you talked about you know maybe money being a thing, right? And I yeah. do believe that at the highest levels that would make sense to me. But you talk like you know right, like maybe like a psychopathic CEO or something. Okay, fine, we can all picture that. But the yeah. doctor that worked with my aunt. I don't believe that was a bad person. So <laughs> is someone like him just not aware of the research that you're talking about? Or like, like what's the deal with that? There is not enough like randomized controlled trials that will produce okay. um, big enough you know, magnitude of significance <laughs> to make it jump out as big as the drugs would, right? And, and you know that natural medicine doesn't work as a monotherapy. Like it's not like sure. you can give them this pill and it will work. Like there's going to be 10 changes at the same time. So that's why um, conventional medicine has a bias against our kind of medicine. I, I hate the okay. word alternative medicine. So I don't think it should be alternative. And it, shouldn't <laughs> be, <laughs> it shouldn't be mutually exclusive either. Like you can do both, you know, like obviously right. check the drug interactions, but everyone should have access to both. Right. Well, and I know that was one of the things you actually kind of wanted to talk about today, like what, why it shouldn't just be choosing alternative medicine. It seems like you want a system where both of these are kind of integrated together, right? Like what would your, let's say, okay, God forbid, let's say I have cancer. Like what would my ideal treatment look like in your perfect world if I went to a doctor? <laughs> well, You're the, like, oh, don't get me started. You don't want to know what this <laughs> would look like. <laughs> uh, well, this is not medical advice, right? But I, I but absolutely not. Yeah, I would say I would say I I don't advise you. But like first of all, I would look at what what's going on in my life, like um, food wise, um, the way you're living, what kind of carcinogens you are exposed to. You can get genetic testing to to see like what kind of predisposition you have. You can test the tumors, um, and then I did have a client who test the tumors and then look at like different natural products that can target the genes and things like that. So that's a possibility. Obviously I know how to look at the drugs and their, the clinical studies. So I want to see like, are they effective? What are the targets? What are the side effects and all these things? So like take into account our different options. Um, yeah. I'm not sure if that answers your question. So like some, some oh, cancers respond better to, like a plant-based diet, some other cancers respond better to ketogenic diets, right? So there, there room for personalization there. Like I used to be religious about diet, but not anymore. <laughs> okay, wow, and, and that's actually interesting to me because listen, I mean, at FDN, you know how it is. I mean, we we do advocate for bio individuality, but technically, most of the diet recommendations do involve some type of animal protein. Yeah, And one of the things that I had noticed that I found interesting, and I don't hear about this all the time, but I have heard about it before almost exclusively with cancer. I don't hear this working so well with autoimmunity, but with mm-hmm. cancer, I have a friend, her name's Connie, and she had breast cancer. She did no treatment through Western medicine at all. No chemo, mm-hmm. no anything. What yeah. she did do is she went down to the Hippocrates Institute of Healing in West Palm Beach, wow. Florida, which is raw vegan guys. And I mean, listen, if you're going to do raw vegan, I assume that's probably just about the damn best way to do it because of what they have at that facility. But she resolved the cancer. Mm -hmm. It it shrunk in like the three weeks that she went there, the tumor got smaller or whatever. And then 
she didn't do anything else Western-wise, continued the diet, and it was gone within a matter of months. And mm. this remained true for, I mean, I don't know, it's, she's like 60 now. So the last 12 years, this has remained true. And Connie has not gotten off the raw vegan diet. Like, that's her thing. So wow. I'm not, again, not medical advice, and I'm not advocating for or against it. But I mm. always found it fascinating how some people, like, clearly benefited to their or had benefits to their cancer from a ketogenic diet. And there is research behind that. But then someone like my friend Connie is like eating tons of plants and actually mm-hmm. a fair amount of carbohydrates and fruits. Mm-hmm. And yet obviously got rid of her cancer through that diet because she didn't do anything else. There was no other forms of treatment. So mm-hmm. that's interesting that you recognize both of those things in the literature. There's actually some support for both. Yeah. There, I mean, there are toxins in meat and animal products that I actually like to eat. <laughs> So mm-hmm. yeah, th- that definitely removes a lot of the toxins there, and um, you know increases certain nutrients that can support the immune system, and um, reduces the carcinogenic effects. Right, certain um, antioxidants in vegetables can mm-hmm. trigger apoptosis, for example. But also, and the other thing that I noticed is that every diet comes with its own placebo effect. <laughs> you, you notice yes. that, like. <laughs> When someone changes the diet, they change the belief. Like they believe that something is going to happen, right? And every yeah, raw vegan, sure. specifically, right? It's um, very special. So, like, I, I think there's something about that that can heal cancer. I, absolutely. One of those bringing up apoptosis and even autophagy. Mm-hmm. One of the scary things that I saw, and I don't listen. I'm not a researcher like you. I don't understand this, and it's entirety, but I understood enough to realize, wow, that's kind of scary. Some people will advocate for fasting, extended fasting for uh, cancer. Many people advocate for it for prevention. And Mm -hmm. from the research I've read, I think that's sound advice. Um, However, what's very scary to me is obviously the way that that's actually helping cancer primarily is through increased insulin sensitivity, autophagy, and apoptosis. So that's great. You're killing off these bad cells. You're cleaning damaged cells. Awesome. Mm -hmm. However, I have seen some stuff now that shows when cancer gets to a certain level in yeah. certain cancers, again, I don't understand that part. It can actually override autophagy and apoptosis and now use it to its advantage. That's kind of scary. <laughs> yeah, that's true. And yeah, and if you get to a point in cancer journey, like you, you can get cachexic, yeah, which is like you lose muscles and you gain fat, right? So that's when hmm. fasting might not be a good idea. Okay. Wow. And so I think with cancer, I mean, if there's one thing that we have to tell everyone today, I would imagine that prevention is the best medicine here rather than like try to fix this once you get it, right? Yeah, exactly. That's one of the reasons I became a natural health practitioner. Well, and that's okay. So we're going to explore that more. And I want to kind of go through that journey. Um, I want to rewind to FDN really quick. And when you went through the course, now you went through in 2012, it was dramatically different then. did you guys, uh, were lab tests included in the tuition back then? Did you run anything on yourself at that time? No, we pay extra, but yeah, I, I run everything. Yeah. Okay. So you did run everything and you're going through the system. And how did that work for you at the time for, well, how about this? How did that work for you at the time? And at that point, what were your main symptoms that you were worried about? Uh, my main symptoms was that I started developing histamine intolerance. Right? So I had things that I've been eating my entire life um, that I actually enjoy, like paprika and um, what else? Like there, you know, Thai tea, like that orange color tea. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's like so yummy. Yeah, those things made me feel awful. It's all of a sudden. <laughs> Yeah, I started getting strange rashes on my hands and like mm. those things. So I'm like, okay, I'm going to shake things out. And I started running all these labs. And then 
um, did the protocol. So I found blasto in, in my gut. And one of the interesting things I find is that I have like super high cortisol compared to everyone else. But all my other clients have cortisol in the tank. <laughs> yeah. You just have to understand at the time. But whenever someone said, you know, stress causes high cortisol, it's like, well, maybe that's not true. It's you, you need different levels of interpretation there. Yeah. So I did, I cleaned up the gut, um, did order the protocols and absolutely nothing changed. And now I realized that in hindsight, it was because of the way I was living and the way I was dealing with my emotions at the time. Like I, I didn't know how to slow okay. down. I didn't know how to, I mean, like it's so easy for me to follow any diet. Like give me a diet, I implement it, I make it happen. But I didn't know how to eat slowly. I didn't know how to slow down. I didn't know how to feel my feelings. So that was the bigger problem because there was a lot of traumas that were unaddressed. And those were the things that keep my nervous system dysregulated. And yeah, it's time. Were... Sorry, go ahead. No, no, no. I, I didn't mean to... there, there's a little delay between us on my end. So I pop... sure. that's why I keep doing that. I'm not trying to <laughs> cut you off. So you please continue. Sure. Yeah. And as, as time went on, I encountered a lot of people with gut issues. And I realized that a lot of the times it's their nervous system that contributed to that protocol not working. See, you need both. You need both the stress management and the regulating the nervous system in also the gut protocol. Hmm. I think, and I'm someone who went through FDN in 2017, and yeah. I've seen the evolution just since then mm-hmm. for us paying attention more to that type of stuff. But I, I think you make a really great point, and I appreciate your transparency with it because I'm not going to lie. I don't think we've ever had someone come on here and say that the protocols did absolutely nothing. Some have varying degrees of success for sure, yeah. um, but this is a first, and I believe you. I believe you because I feel like just even talking to you in June and then now, you and I seem very intellectually similar like all right you can give us anything we're gonna go get it done we'll work our butts off we'll work to complete exhaustion but if the work involves identifying yeah emotional stuff or things like that well that's the toughest thing in the world i can work 18 hours a day but you make me do that and then it's a whole different ball game right Um, and it's stuff that we need to address and and it can be those reasons that we hang on with these health issues and so i think the fdn course now does a great job at like saying hey this isn't this, we don't offer that per se, mm-hmm. but you got to get that checked out. Like you got to be working with someone that can do that. And so when the protocols um, didn't do as much as you expected, like how long did it take to figure out the whole nervous system and emotional aspect? I'm assuming that wasn't just the next thing, right? Or or was it? Oh, no, it was just the next <laughs> five to seven years, I guess. Like a lot of different oh, geez, things, lots it. of personality development stuff, lots of therapy yeah, different kinds of therapy, hypnotherapy, all of those things. <laughs> and I learned, I mean, like, I learned that, you know, I was a colicky baby. I was pulled out of my mom. I was told later that, you know, the therapist said you were stuck. That was because you were stuck. Mm-hmm. I'm like, oh, okay. I was pulled out of my mom. Um, I was super colicky and it, it, it exhausted my parents. You know, if you had a friend with colicky babies, um, it's hell for the parents. Um, and my mom had, postpartum depression so like when babies are born and they were trying to learn to relate to humans and if the, their parents couldn't relate to the babies that's traumatic so, yeah, so there, there was a lot of stuff like that that were kind of like really jamming my nervous system and it took a lot of practice a lot of slowing down to finally get my health in the right place got it what does colicky babies mean i don't know i don't i've never heard that term like what does that mean I think it's kind of like not completely understood, but um, the baby could have, you know, some gas issue or if they're not birthed properly, 
or if they have certain kind of pain in the body and obviously babies can't talk right so they just cry all the time so yeah yeah crying like yeah. at the top of my lungs and then my parents like and one of the things about the human brain is that um the mother will be wired to respond to the baby right and and that causes like a persistent fight or flight response for my mom and that's extremely stressful yeah okay wow all right makes sense i i actually worry about that a lot because i think about how many kids nowadays especially now are coming out and they're sick. They're sick from day one. They already have metabolic chaos, whether or not Mm -hmm. they realize it. And how much of this just seems like behavioral issues or restlessness or never stopping crying when, you know, a baby especially, but even a toddler might not have the right words to properly communicate Mm -hmm. what's going on. And then we throw the medications at them when really what needed to be changed was the lifestyle and diet. Um, And we're putting kids into this system and they're going to be in it for a long time if they're starting out that early because you know, there, there isn't really a thought around this that, hey, maybe this doesn't make sense. Maybe this isn't normal. Mm-hmm. Um, that's pretty hard for people to break out of that mold. And I, I know that from interviewing all these people. It's just universally, if the person's lucky enough to break out of it, it's just it took years for them to actually say, hey, maybe this doesn't make sense. Or they got really lucky with a family influence or an influence of a friend. But mm-hmm. most of the time, it takes years before we actually take another route and go off the beaten path with this. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So I learned that I had Tang Tai. I got a cut at 29. So it was like, I was not, I didn't swallow correctly for 29 years. Hmm. <laughs> and, and yeah, right. that, it was like, oh, well, that's why I was colicky. Like I couldn't swallow properly. It was like the breathing was incorrect. And then, you know, I got a cut and I had to go into user. It was like do tongue weightlifting exercises. That's called myofunctional therapy. Yeah, and and then I learned that I had some issues with my atlas, like they're the first, um, so we call spine there. So yeah, so that's one of the things that can really cause trouble with babies and cause colic because it's really painful and uncomfortable. Okay, so going back to FDN really quick, because you're someone that still says FDN was great, helped them out, but the initial protocols didn't work for you. So in your personal experience, how, how did FDN help you? Was it from the business side, getting access to the labs? Like where did it best serve you? Definitely getting access to the labs, um, understanding how functional medicine works. And it's mm-hmm. it's also important to understand it. Like each each field that you went through, there's going to be certain things that you need to know. Like by, I was helping menopause a woman and I didn't know much about um, hormone replacement therapy. It was helping um, like women who are like me, like premenopausal, and at the time I didn't know anything about blood control, endometriosis, or PCOS, and you know fertility and all those kind of things that now I eventually learned. Yeah, um, yeah, it's it's a really good way to get my food in the door and helping people think in a different way about their health. Like so there's like cool. yeah, so they can talk yeah. about yeah, they can talk about these diseases. But um, the way the doctor thinks about it's one way and you can explain this is a different way of looking at your hormones and your symptoms. And that's very, very helpful. Yeah, that's what I, I you just said it perfectly because I always try to describe on this podcast that FDN in my opinion, more than anything is a way of thinking. It's not even the labs. It's not necessarily the lifestyle stuff. It's all of that, but it's the way of thinking first and foremost, that when I see someone with a symptom or a, a condition or a diagnosis that I know in my head by definition that they cannot possibly be in a state of health 
because mm-hmm. they wouldn't have a symptom otherwise. And amazingly, Western medicine will still tell plenty of people that they're healthy, even if they're on one or more medications. Now, it depends on the condition, right? Yeah. I don't think any, I don't know of any doctor that's going to say that someone who's dealing with Hashimoto's is healthy, mm-hmm. but I know plenty that will say, oh, well, your blood pressure's super high and we give you this drug. Oh, yeah, but you're healthy though. Or the cholesterol's out of whack, but you're healthy or whatever it might be. And it's like, okay, well, what does health mean? Mm-hmm. And to us as FDNs, health means like, actually being healthy, feeling good, not having symptoms, not having random headaches or stomach aches all the time. That's, I think that's a fair definition of health. (laughs) Yeah. And I think Reed said, when you remove the blocking factors, like the body can heal itself. And I I completely agree (laughs) with that. Right. So, I mean, and it is a stage of development. A lot of really successful FDN practitioners will have like 10 certifications (laughs) because they're like me. I was super curious and I always feel like, oh yeah, this this is another thing that can help some of their clients. I feel like, yeah, I learned learned to read the labs. I learned to do the protocol and then I learned the fitness. I learned like how to help them, you know, do that programs that will help with weight loss and things like that. And then there are always more things to learn, like I learned corrective exercise or exercise physiology. And and I learned their mind body stuff. So yeah, that there's there's a lot of different pieces for sure in, in terms of like removing the blocking factor. A lot of my clients like so it's when I, I hear it because I'm aware of my own issues with the sleep problems. So when I look at their profile, I'm like, mm-hmm. yeah, this person should get checked for sleep apnea. Right. So that's another blocking factor that actually bothers a lot of our client base. Yeah. Got it. When you finally realized because I, I feel like this whole um, topic of the emotional stuff or, or whatever, it needs to be addressed to heal. And that's that's great. And a mm-hmm. lot of people say this nowadays. But my question is, did you learn anything along the way that would have prevented maybe or would prevent someone else from not having to wait five to seven years like you did? Because you're pretty smart, clearly never stop learning. Mm-hmm. So that's that's already tough enough for you. I mean, that's going to be really tough for the average person. Like, are there any clues or hints now that you would give to someone that say, hey, no, this is definitely something that you need to look at the emotional and nervous system stuff as opposed to just the labs? Because not that there's plenty of people. We had someone, the first person we ever had on this podcast, Ryan Monahan, mm-hmm. he goes on, he had a gut issue. He had blastocystis hominis. Yeah. And he gets that removed and his Hashimoto's more or less goes away. I mean, he literally felt so much better after that. And yet you did not feel much of anything. So this just shows how different it can be. Mm-hmm. Do you have any tips for that? Um, for learning about like, where it's your regulate your nervous system. Well, I guess too, just like identifying that that's even the problem, because if we're just, I'm sorry to be so long winded, but I'm trying to be clear. Like <laughs> if I just saw you and Ryan as clients in the same day yeah. and I look at your lab results And that's all I saw. There's nothing to tell me that Ryan's going to have dramatic results with this and feel amazing. And Nata's not going to feel much of anything at all. So I'm trying to figure out if there are other clues that practitioners can look at to figure out, okay, this person needs a little more than just the labs. Um, Well, first of all, everyone has some degrees of traumas, right? Um, If you, there must be some good questionnaires there. Uh, I'm trying to browse my head if I've come across a good questionnaire, but like if someone is extremely type A and they look perfect at any given time, yeah, but sometimes I just ask like, do you think there's any emotional things going on or like any recent traumas? And a lot of people will have that in the past few years before they had the latest flare. Yeah. Mm. Um, do you, do you, um, do you promote any summits? I think some FDN talks about summits. So there are, biology of trauma summit so that's extremely helpful to go through to like spot these signs in your clients 
Okay, cool. I've never promoted it, but why not right now? It sounds good to me. <laughs> I think a lot of people are really, listen, people are becoming more aware of this in general and yeah. our practitioners, regardless of FDN, are always just up to date with the latest stuff, I think. So I, I think that's great to let them know about that. There's a lot of people that I'm seeing in the AFDNP group who are talking about these things mm-hmm. and, and many other topics that are cutting edge. It's really cool. Yeah. So there's the different levels. So I think that can happen like in the past, in the future, or in the past, the past generations. But for me, like at birth, um, during my childhood, sometimes in their adult food years or um, traumas can also happen when you're dealing with your symptoms, right? Especially for people who are always on like Facebook and forums trying to Google and talk about a health issue. So that's another type of trauma. And it kind of nailed their beliefs that they're sick and something's wrong. So yes, that that's another type of thing. So for, for that kind of stuff, something like DNRS would be helpful. I think dynamic yeah. neural retraining system. Yeah. To to get it their, sounds good. The yeah, head, sounds good. <laughs> yeah, get the head out of their sickness programming. I, I used to not believe that that was a thing until I read their possible um literature and i think that's really convincing that it can actually help that's one thing i wanted to ask you too while i had you on um because you're someone who actually goes into the trenches does the research knows how to read studies and i i understand that there's more access to studies than ever before. Like I can go on PubMed right now Mm -hmm. and start looking up stuff, but that just because I can look up stuff doesn't mean that it's good. And I see a lot of people sharing things that, I mean, from a layman's perspective, look super credible. Mm -hmm. And then you realize it's total junk science. (laughs) So as a researcher yourself, um, and again, we're talking to people right now who might be educated, but they're, they're not PhDs. They're not out there actually looking at studies. Like if I'm on PubMed and trying to find something like what could I do and apply immediately? What should I be looking for in these studies to like differentiate as to whether or not they're actually credible and good studies? Well, there's so many different levels of evidence, right? So like sometimes um, a lot of supplements will formulate based on animal studies, but at least like you want to look for a well-controlled study. I think I saw like a study about grounding it was like, okay, here's before, here's after. And I'm like, what happened to the control? <laughs> yeah. But, yeah. So like for every study, you need the negative control. Like the thing that you know is not going to produce a result and the positive control. Just the thing that you know will produce a result um, side by side with the thing that you're studying. Um, I think that's- And it would probably be wise to check on the quantity of the people yeah. and participants in the study, right? Like if we're doing this on 10 people, it means a lot less than 10,000. <laughs> yeah, and, and the sample size, right? So- like mm-hmm. sometimes it's animal, sometimes it's sometimes it's cells, sometimes it's humans, and I think those are all legitimate evidence. But then you want to see if their experiments experiments done properly. Um, what else though? And then you want to see if their studies are who who sponsored the study. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, a lot of yeah. remedies have. It's it's so scary that we even have to worry about this, right? And you're so right though, because like. I mean, Monsanto had been caught having ghostwriter researchers like act like they did the studies when they didn't. The guy, all this is real, by the way. People can look this up. It was it was a guy from Stanford, for God's sake. You know, a highly credible person, you would think. <laughs> and, you know, you give someone enough money, though, and they'll do almost anything. And he literally made a study that was fake. And then wow. Monsanto did this. How was this company even allowed to operate after that? Like, I have so many questions about this. Yeah, <laughs> that's like, crazy. Oh, man. 
yeah, but we shouldn't have to worry about that. It's just nuts. So we got to be, I know that FDNs are great people and you guys are doing things with the best intentions. That doesn't mean everyone else is. And so we need to be, we need to have a healthy amount of skepticism when we look at these things. Yeah. And yeah, I've had stages of development. There, there were times that I thought like everything has to be PubMed and science. And I realized that you don't practice <laughs> out of PubMed because there's, there's a people aspects of it. So yeah, so you figure out Good. things that work with your clients and then you, you know, so there's the clinical evidence in your hands and then there's their studies. So there's two different things, but you can use right. both. Yeah. Well, okay. Well said. Well said. Um, one other thing that we definitely wanted to talk about today as, because you're totally a person to be able to talk about this is kind of where the conventional system is not serving people so well. And I know that you said, especially for women, even like there's an extra level of lack of care there. So yeah. um, in your opinion, where is conventional medicine failing <laughs> us and women especially? Well, conventional medicine is failing everyone, like both the doctors and the patients, mm-hmm. because it doesn't equip the doctors enough to help the patients at the lifestyle level. And um, I was thinking like a lot of the diseases that we're dealing with, so diabetes, hormonal issues, fertility issues, um, yeah, cancer, all these things have affected uh, the epigenetic component to it and that started from our grandparents generation that's one of the reasons i think millennials are getting sick at a higher rate like i have friends who are 30 years old and they get diabetic and i'm like that, that in our parents generation they would have to be much older to be diabetic right but um because of a lot of exposures from our grandparents and our parents generation we are more susceptible than before and i feel like conventional medicine was invented in a lot of ways when people were not as sick as they are now so we're sick Mm -hmm. at the level that we are from the collection of a lot of things from toxic exposures nutrient deficiencies second and rhythm disorders um epigenetics from our parents and grandparents and stress and collective traumas we're dealing with right so this is why um, we're getting a lot of issues that even doctors can't understand what it is. So sometimes you just say, like, it's in your head. In women, are more likely to get that statement than men. But mm-hmm. the sucky part for men is that they just tend to suck it up and not do anything until it's really bad. <laughs> and yeah. women are more likely to get help. So um, a lot of medical providers, even the women, get into the habit of telling women that the problems are in the head or um, something along that line so that they turn to alternative medicine and that's really not cool. Even like stuff like, you know, the, the classic stuff that conventional medicine pays attention to all the time, like heart attacks, like women die more from heart attack than men because the symptoms in women are very different. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. And there was a time I'm where drugs were developed, like only doing clinical trials in men because women have menstrual cycles and all these things. Right. And, one of the examples was Ambien. So women metabolize Ambien more slowly than men. So when Ambien was out, like a lot of women had car accidents and died. So when they actually got it out, that we needed half the dose of men for the same size, body weight, and all that jazz. Then they passed a law that they need to do clinical trials across other demographics that will be using the medications. Wow. Yeah, so look, Ambien is a scary drug. It's a scary drug. I'm not I'm not saying to take Ambien, but I'm just saying like Yeah, I know. It's just like yeah. <laughs> if you're if you're a woman, like you, you need to you need to stand up to yourself for, for yourself, to your doctor. Right. You need to question why they're doing things a certain way. Like 
you know, for example, like an average woman with PCOS have to go through at least, I remember correctly, like a couple of different doctors across a few years to get correctly diagnosed. And it's, it's a sad statistic. Yeah. Yeah. That's, um, I, I forget, I, you know, because it's tough. We obviously people like you and I were involved with so much information. It's hard to retain it all. But <laughs> I remember something about like autoimmune diagnoses and just how many autoimmune diseases, because it's way overrepresented in women that deal with this stuff. They don't go diagnosed or once they do come to the doctor, it takes years and years for them to get a proper diagnosis. Yeah. Um, I, this is an anecdotal example, but for ex- uh, my mom, it was seven years for her to get diagnosed wow. with Graves disease despite having those exact same symptoms the entire time. So it was the same condition, but then someone finally figured out that it was Graves' disease. And I mean, yeah, sure, grant you Graves' disease is not, it's not something you hear about every day. You know, I I get that. But still, we just, we really do not have a great system yet. Mm -hmm. Like you'd think that this is where they're the best, diagnosing the stuff. But I mean, Western medicine, a lot of the times can't even do that. And so that's why it's really important that we do combine both of these things together because, we didn't need, hear me out on this, uh, people that are listening. We didn't necessarily need a diagnosis of Graves' disease to help my mom. Yeah. Western true. medicine requires a, a dis- diagnosis of Graves' disease to help my mom. We still would have done our stuff. We would have st- still done diet, rest, exercise, stress reduction, supplementation, and it would have helped, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but if Western medicine doesn't have that diagnosis, there's only so many things that they can do. And yes, I hear this all the time. Um, I've never heard a man say this. I have heard it with women that it is kind of just in your head or whatever. Mm -hmm. I I definitely have had doctors play me off and not take it seriously, but it's never been with those comments. It it was never like, Oh, you're just stressed out. I I think that's something that almost exclusively they throw at women and it's not fair. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think content marketing is going to change that. Right. (laughs) Yeah. whether you like it or not google is becoming a health company and people are going to google their stuff and hopefully uh, i mean obviously doctors don't like it maybe we don't like it when people just google other stuff and come to us but i think yeah we, we do have to stick up to our doctors and do our research and we can't hand out over our health and our future to anyone Mm-hmm. Yep. Well, I cannot, I love talking to you. I mean, I cannot believe how fast this is going by and I want to make sure I get time to talk about what you do and stuff. So with all your research, all these certifications, degrees, the background that you have, what is it that you do now? Like who do you help and how do you help them? Yeah. So I found my calling doing medical writing. Um, it's, I'm, I'm going to save you up this story, but my family Googled me before they listened to me because, you know, we have family members um, who don't listen to us and we give them like the natural mm-hmm. health stuff, but it was, yeah, this is their sign. So I think that's the power there. So that's why I do science-based content marketing, copywriting and build online courses for many functional medicine doctors and also like supplement companies. Cause I feel like it's the best way to bring these things to the mainstream. So, yeah. Well, that's a very specific thing to find one's passion in. So I believe you that it is your passion because I don't think many people have told me that before. (laughs) Um, That is pretty cool. I I feel like... And you're right. No, it is... Sorry, go ahead. I I was just going to say it's one more essential piece. Like we we need people on all ends of this helping out in many different ways. So yeah, I mean, for some people that is going to be their thing. So that's cool. Yeah. Yeah. It's a grassroots movement to, to show people that there's science behind it and convert them at that level. Right? So I think it's extremely important to bringing the, the clinical outcomes to their, I guess, to the community at large. Mm-hmm. 
So just to be clear then for someone listening, if they do think you're cool, you're not taking clients then in the sense of like coming for a health reason per se, it would be more like a practitioner that needs support or a doctor that needs support with this aspect of things. Occasionally I would get like any possible case and be like, do you find anything on PubMed about this? Because, you know, they've seen a bunch of different people and doctors and I haven't seen the results that they're looking for. But no, that's, yeah, our main thing is their online content copies and courses that's very deep and science-based, you know, and high integrity. So you only take the clients if it's like extremely complicated that it's a challenge. <laughs> um, I'm drawn to that kind of problem, but I wouldn't say I like. <laughs> yeah. Gotcha. So yeah, if you got something that no one else could help with, not just your person, and you do sound like you could be that person. Um, now with that said, if let's, I mean, listen, we have a bunch of practitioners that listen. We have doctors that listen. Mm-hmm. So if someone is interested in your services, uh, where can they find you? Yeah, just go to wellnessmedicalwriter.com or you know, email me at nataadwellnessmedicalwriter.com and we can book a 30 minute call and see how we can help you with Very cool. We will have that in the show notes, of course. And now, Nata, we have a signature question that we always finish up with on the Health Detective podcast. Mm -hmm. And the question is this. If I could give you, in this case, a magic wand and you could get every single person in this world to do one thing for their health, whether that's literally do one thing or stop doing one thing, what is the one thing that Nata would get them to do? Oh, boy. (laughs) Um. Hmm. Oh, yeah, magnesium. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think that that would improve everyone's health. And oof. Is, it, is everything okay? Oh, yeah, sorry, you're yeah, yeah. a little sorry. lagged out. So Yeah, okay, so I think the magnesium is a big one because nearly everyone is low in magnesium these days and it's a big contributor to all kinds of health issues. And I know a lot of people will have trouble changing their diets or change their habits in other ways, so... I would start with that. All right, everyone. Well, that'll wrap it up for today's episode. If you like the content that we are producing and sharing with you, please consider leaving us a five-star review on Apple and or Spotify. If you did that, we would love you even more than we already do. And I... Going to put a little emphasis on the Spotify one, please, because you guys are amazing. We have tons of reviews on Apple, and yet we're not even ranked somehow on the ratings on Spotify, which is pretty incredible considering how many listens we get. So I don't know how that's happened, but if you would be so kind as to leave us a rating there, that would be wonderful because there are millions of people out there right now that don't even know this information exists. And so the higher we can boost this up, the better the odds that they can hear this and actually have a chance of healing. So we'd greatly appreciate it. Just search for the Health Detective Podcast on Apple or Spotify. Leave us a rating there. Simple five stars is great. If you can leave us something written, that is even better. I am looking forward to talking to you guys again soon, but until then, please take care.